Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. Jill Tarter has spent the majority of her life scanning the skies for alien signals. But unlike many others who might fit that description, Jill is a serious scientist equipped with a PhD in astronomy from Berkeley, and the longtime director of the SETI Institute, SETI being the acronym for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. She is also, incidentally, the model for Carl Sagan's lead character, Ellie Arroway, in the novel, and later movie, Contact. But while Jill is naturally delighted to talk about the fascinating scientific details associated with her lifelong quest, she becomes even more passionate still when ruminating on the fundamental importance of doing it in the first place. SETI is an acronym, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. But having said that, I also have to say, that's a misnomer. We don't know how to find intelligence. Um, I assume you're intelligent because you've come to visit me, right? But uh, in figuring out intelligence at a distance is something we can't do. So we use a proxy. We use technology as a proxy for intelligence. And so what we're trying to do is use the tools of the astronomer. Radio telescopes in this case, optical telescopes in other sites, uh, to try and figure out if we can see evidence that someone out there is using some kind of technology that we can sense over the enormous distances between the stars. Sending us a message, sending us a, giving us a beacon. That's right. Uh, Generating a signal that doesn't look like astrophysics, doesn't look like Mother Nature, but looks like something that was engineered. So what kind of signals would those be? Give us, give us a description, broad-based, of the sorts of signals uh, that we would, we would be looking for that are non-natural. Non-natural. So um, consider optical. Um, how about a flash, a bright, bright flash of light that lasts less than a billionth of a second? We don't know of any transient astronomical sources that can do that, but lasers can. So you take a laser, you take a big telescope, you focus it, and you send out a laser pulse, and you can encode all kinds of information in that. And it arrives at our telescopes looking nothing like Mother Nature if you build detectors which can count photons fast enough to realize that you just got a whole lot of photons in one nanosecond, right? right? So that's optical SETI, and that didn't start until sort of the 2000 timescale because the, um, the technology that you need, the receivers, weren't affordable. They were being used by the military before that, but they weren't something that scientists could afford. Now we can, so now we're doing optical SETI. The historical SETI has been radio searches, and there you're looking for um, signals that are compressed in frequency. So the optical signals are compressed in time, last a billionth of a second or less. Here we're looking for uh, signals that have a lot of power, just sort of at one channel on the radio dial. Just like when you listen to the radio yourself, you're looking at a particular frequency, you're tuned to a particular frequency. So the idea is that 
anybody who wants to communicate with us would be sending something tuned to a very small frequency. Right, because nature doesn't do that. Right. Nature is emitting because you've got atoms or molecules, uh, lots and lots and lots of them, non big ensemble, and they're moving relative to one another. So even if each atom emits uh, a particular frequency, because of the relative motion, that emission is spread out in the frequency domain. So we, with technology, can send very narrowband signals. That's one thing, and that's traditionally what we've looked for. We're beginning to be able to use the, um, the correlator technology here and the imaging technology here at the um, Allen Telescope Array to look for signals that have a lot of encoded information, look for signals that have a repetitive um, uh, cycle to them, right. even if we don't know how to decode them. Again, it's the sort of thing that nature doesn't do. Exactly. Uh, there are all kinds of different signals you could look for, and the more compute power that we have to throw at this problem, the wider we can make our net. But this idea of a single tone, sort of a, a dial tone, if you wish, an attention-getting signal, right. uh, still remains a valid one, and that's what we're looking for. Because that's essentially what we would do if we were in the business, and, and perhaps we will be at some point, if we were in the business of beaming out a signal to other people to let them know, uh, that is to say a deliberate signal, mm -hmm. to let them know exactly where we are and what, and, and what we're thinking, we would do something presumably similar to this. If, so, well, they're, they're, we might do that, and, and I think we would. And, and if we ever grow up as a civilization, <laughs> that may be in our future to start transmitting. But you know, if you're going to transmit and you're talking about having some effect, you've got to be talking about a 10,000-year plan right. or a 15,000-year plan, and we're barely able to get two-year plans done. So right. that's or, in our future. Or even two-month plans. Yeah. But I, I, I want to get back to that, because I want to clarify these distances and what's actually involved and how the signal works. But let me just back up and, and ask you to back up and tell us a little bit more. You mentioned the story of SETI started with radio telescopes. If you could just give us a little bit of history as to, as to how SETI came to be what it is now uh, and how your role, how, how you got involved and how you got excited about it. I think that's a wonderful story. Well, SETI as a scientific discipline started in 1959, the publication of a paper in the journal Nature right. by Giuseppe Cocconi and Phil Morrison. And these physicists suggested that we go looking for interstellar communication at radio frequencies. Particularly, they suggested the, uh, the frequency associated with the hydrogen um, atom mm -hmm. because it's the most abundant element in the universe. So that paper was the scientific birth of SETI. The next year, in 1960, Frank Drake, right. who was working at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Greenbank, West Virginia, had been thinking independently about SETI and had been, he had been planning on a search. He kind of got scooped when this paper came right, out. I didn't realize that. Oh, cool. yeah. Um, <laughs> it was all done in secret until this paper came out, and then they were a little bit upset that somebody had sure. beaten them to the punch. By but months. anyway, yes, by months. <laughs> so, but in the spring of 1960 uh, at Green Bank, uh, Frank used uh, the Tatel telescope to listen for signals from two nearby stars, right. Tau Ceti, Epsilon, Aridini. That was called Project Ozma, and it was the first radio search. And he was doing exactly the sort of thing we're doing now, looking for these narrowband signals. He could do it only one channel at a time. Right. We now do hundreds of millions of channels at a time. 
It's because technology has improved, but sure. that was the first observational program. And since 1960, there have been 120, 125 projects that I've been able to uh, find in the literature and document. Um, seems like a lot. 50 plus years, people say, well, if you've looked for 50 years and you haven't found anything, must be nothing out there. And people just haven't got much of a concept about how vast the cosmos is, um, how large this cosmic haystack that we're trying to search is, and how many different dimensions and all of these different um, ways that signals could be generated that we haven't yet searched for. So. It's, um, it's a daunting undertaking, but you know, it's really fun to be part of an exponential technology. Things are growing so fast, and we can do so much more today than we could do last year, that it's, it's encouraging. Our tools may, may finally, after 50 years, be getting to be commensurate with the size of the task. And we'll be improving ever ever more rapidly, as, yeah. you, as you and mentioned. It was technology that got me involved in so SETI. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. My understanding is it wasn't as if you were yourself SETI-obsessed when you were very small. This came almost by chance. Your, oh, your it was an accident. It was a very fortunate accident in my case. Um, when I started graduate school at Berkeley, uh, we the, the very first desktop computer, the first time we had compute power on the top of our desk, right. the PDP-8S was released. And my job, my first year as a graduate student, was to program that computer to run um, a, a, a spectrograph at an optical telescope that the university used as a teaching tool. Sounds like a graduate student job. Absolutely. <laughs> and you know, this, the, I always thought the, the slash S the S stood for stupid because there was no language. You had to program this in Octal. You had to set all the ones and zeros. It had 11 instructions that it could do. And you could, you could make it run the world with those 11 instructions as long as you got the ones and the zeros in the right order. And so I did this. Um, and then many years later, as I was finally leaving graduate school, Stu Boyer, uh, an X-ray astronomer, had been listening to the talks that had been going on at NASA Ames Research Center about SETI and about the engineering study they had done there called Project Cyclops mm -hmm. about how you might detect uh, extraterrestrial intelligence using a radio telescope. And Stu said, oh, UC Berkeley, we've got, we've got a radio telescope. My friend Jack Welch, he's got a telescope. I can piggyback. I can steal some of the astronomers' signals. And, and in, in the radio part of the spectrum, you can do that because if you... Um, if you break the signal into multiple parts, you can just amplify it right. back. Be right. You can't do that at optical wavelengths. Okay. You can get your hands chopped off if you try and take an astronomer's photon, but uh, an optical astronomer's photon. But it works in the radio. So you just take the same data and you analyze it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And great idea that Stu had. And the telescope he was thinking about was here at, at Hat Creek. At, at that time, out in that meadow, there so was what, a- When was this exactly? This what, what? was uh, mid-70s. Okay. And at the time, there was this huge 85-foot telescope that stood out in that meadow. Uh, and that's what we started with in a program that we called Serendip. Stu came and recruited me because somebody gave him that computer, and then somebody else told him that I'd once known how to program that computer. <laughs> and he came and he, he said, gee, come join my team. And I, he gave me the summer report from the engineering study that had been done at NASA Ames, the Cyclops report. And 
I read that cover to cover in one night, and that's not easy. It was written by Barney Oliver, the engineer's engineer, right? <laughs> but I was, you know what? I was so hooked at the idea that I happened to be around at just the right time in all of the generations of, of humans with just the right skills to try and do an experiment to answer this old question. All we'd done in the past was ask the priests, the philosophers, the wise people, what should we believe, right? Now we could do an experiment and try and figure out what is. And that was what was so exciting, to be there at the right time, the right place, with the right skills, to try and answer this question that no one had been able to answer. It's a funny thing uh, hearing you talk, because science tends to get this, this reputation, often wholly undeserved, in my view, of being staid, of being <laughs> detailed, of being not so interesting, of being very technical, boring. Not, and, and listening to you and understanding the quest we're talking about, really completely the other side of, of, of the whole equation here, if I may use a mathematical metaphor. The idea that, that you could be involved, the timing was just perfect, it was serendipitous, that you were working on serendip, as it were, and, and, and you had the opportunity to be involved in one of the greatest quests in the history of mankind, a perennial quest, as I said before. People have been wondering for the longest possible time, are we alone? Is there anybody out there? And finally, the technology has reached a point where we can actually seriously, scientifically begin to study the question, and you're right in the heart of it. That's, that's an incredibly exciting, magnificent opportunity. I agree. I got hooked, and I've stayed hooked. Uh, I'm, I have the, probably the best job in the world, although sometimes it makes me want to cut my throat when I can't find it funding for it. But we'll you know, when I, when I talk to um, young people, I try and counter this image that you just portrayed of science. And I try and tell these kids, if you are lucky enough to have a career in science or engineering, um, you never have to grow up. You never have to stop asking why. That should be a huge incentive, and not, it's, not growing up. I, growing old is inevitable. Growing up, that's, that's an option. <laughs> and some of us have decided not to do that, right? right. Um, it's, it's amazing to come in to work in the morning or at night or whenever it is and sit down and you formulate the questions that you want to work on. Uh, it isn't punching a clock. It isn't doing what someone tells you. You've actually put in the time. Right. It doesn't come easy. You have to do a lot of study. You have to develop some really good skills and a knowledge base. But having put that effort in, you get to spend your life trying to answer questions that no one else has had an answer to. Right. Let me bring it back a little bit to, to the land that I promised to go to, which is let's specify some aspect of the, the, the length scales and the time scales that we're talking about. There is this, this uh, the speed limit that we have to deal with, which is the speed of light. And we know that uh, whoever is trying to contact us has to deal with that speed limit, unless there's some new physics that we're not particularly familiar with, um, which means that the signal, uh, we can figure out how long whatever signal they want to send will take because uh, it has to obey this particular speed limit and we have a sense of how far away they are. And, I, and as I said before, I think people tend to get a little bit confused. Understandably, you get these numbers thrown around, millions and billions and trillions and gazillions and so forth and so on. Um, so uh, a, a couple of points that, that I think might be, might be worth mentioning is just a sense of, where are we looking at? You talk about the universe, you talk about the solar system, you talk about the, the, the galaxy. So let me, let me give a stab at what I understand 
um, the situation is, and you tell me if I'm, if I'm off base or if I'm not off base, and then I'll, I'll hand it over to you. So my understanding is that the galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, this, this big thing, this big cluster of, of, of stars where we find ourselves now, which of course you can see in the night sky, is something of the order of what, 75,000, 80,000 light years across, right? End or? to end, it's 100,000 light 100, years. Okay. And we're not quite at the edge. Right. So from our position on the Earth to the far end of the galaxy, it's about 75,000 light years. 75,000 light years. Which means that if we're looking in the Milky Way galaxy, we're looking uh, at a signal which can take up to 75,000 years to reach us. Correct. From when it was emitted. And then if we want to look beyond the Milky Way galaxy, you have some, some graphics which maybe you can, um, you, you, yeah. you can, you can speak okay, to. Okay, so, so here, right, we put up a picture of, there's a grand design spiral, a beautiful spiral galaxy like the Milky Way. Obviously, we can't get outside the Milky Way to take a picture, picture. <laughs> so this is an analog, right? right. This is a proxy. Um, and you can see that we're not in the center, Right. We're out towards the boondocks, out right. towards the edge. And right. if you were to look through the center and all the way out to the other side, about 75,000 light years. And just before you switch that, that sign, so there are a whole bunch of stars in there. And, and, and the closest star to us, to that here point, is, is roughly, what, about four, four, uh, four Proxima, light years? Proxima Centauri is our closest star, and it's 4.2 light years. So, so if we're trying to receive signals... Actually, our closest star is the sun. Right, and sure. it's eight light minutes away, as right. I learned from a Raisin Bran commercial when I was a kid. <laughs> and never let it be said that a Raisin Bran can help you become a great scientist. I should, I should say. So if you're looking at uh, if you're looking at receiving a signal from some planets around some of those stars, the range within the Milky Way, the 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 range is between four light years and and roughly seventy five thousand light years. Right, and since this is early days. For SETI, I mean, it, we don't know whether there are any other technological civilizations in the galaxy, but we can be pretty sure that we're about the youngest. We've only had technology for a hundred years that's right. relevant for this kind of research. That's a hundred years out of a galaxy that's 10 billion years old. So if there are other technologies that could be transmitting, they're going to be older, right. statistically speaking. So since we're young and our, t our capabilities are at a minimum, we actually start looking close by. And then as we're able to build mm -hmm. up larger and larger instruments with more sensitivity, we shift our focus to stars that are farther away. So right now, we're actually doing something that's so cool because we couldn't even begin to think about doing this when I started in this. There's a spacecraft called Kepler. Right that is continuously staring at 100 square degrees on the sky. And in that 100 square degrees, it's looking at 150,000 stars right. and waiting for some of those stars to blink because a planet has passed in front of them. And so far, Kepler has shown us 2,321 candidate exoplanets. And later this month, Kepler is going to be announcing a new batch of exoplanet candidates. So in that 100 degrees of the sky, we actually know where there are planets. And that's where we're pointing our telescopes. And on average, the stars in the Kepler field are six or 700 light years away. So that's really? kind They're of the reach. Close. I didn't realize that's that. That's the sort of reach that we have right now. Right. 
that's where we're focusing. So um, a couple of hundred light years. And, 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 and there's something, it seems to me, to be uh, fantastically inspiring about that because before we started this whole notion of looking for these exoplanets, these, these non-solar planets, planets around other stars, people had assumed from statistical arguments, from uh, their own particular philosophical basis, well, most stars should probably have, or many stars should probably have planets around them, but there was no empirical evidence. There was no right. way of getting that empirical evidence. But this idea that, yes, it turns out, the more and more we see, and the more sophisticated our probes are, and our experiments are, and our devices are, the more we actually get confirmation of this idea that, that it's not at all uncommon for stars to have numbers of planets that are surrounding them, even the ones that we can see, let alone the ones that we can't yet actually right. determine, that certainly gives the people who are of the view that uh, there might be, uh, the, 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 the galaxy might be teeming with, with life and with other possibilities, certainly a great deal more, uh, more reason to be optimistic. I That's right. Until, um, until 1992, planets were a good theory, but we had never seen any. And then the first three planets we found we're orbiting this burned-out cinder of a star that's called a radio pulsar. And we never saw the planets, but we could tell they were there because they were um, screwing up the very regular ticking of this pulsar clock. Right. Um, in 90, and then in 95, we began to find the first uh, planets around normal stars. And now we know of thousands. And I think most scientists would say, yeah, probably more planets than stars out there. Uh, it's it's a, That's a there's a lot of real estate and whether it's inhabited or habitable that's a question and it's a really timely question lots of people are getting excited right. uh, you know in the planet finding community people are just right on edge waiting for the discovery and announcement of earth 2.0 right an earth-sized planet earth mass orbiting a star like the Sun at about the distance that the Earth is from the Sun, the right. eight light minutes, right. um, something that might be habitable. Uh, we're all we think it's it's just around the corner. But the evidence seems to be mounting. Before so, before we move, lots of lots, lots of and questions. lots of planets. So this is there's a tremendous amount of excitement. But what what you're talking about again, just to emphasize, is you're you're talking about the the exoplanets and the, and the candidates that are very very close to us in one percent one percent of the distance across in that galaxy, galaxy yeah. and then if again just to put things in their proper cosmological perspective we to look at the universe as a whole of course we go outside of this galaxy and, yes and, and and then we find that there are are many uh, galaxies again the the helpful here sign right, right, right. to, to uh, it should not be taken literally. <laughs> <laughs> so pointing to a spiral galaxy, and all the other dots up there are not stars, but they are in fact galaxies in their own right. And this, this is um, part of the Hubble Deep Field, right. a piece of sky that we thought was pretty empty until the Hubble stared at it for so many hours that it developed, built up the sensitivity to see these galaxies, which are very, very far away. Far away in space, far away in time. So whereas we were talking about 100,000 light years across our galaxy, the step to the, ne the next galaxy is millions of light years. Right. So although we talk about the fact that there are 100 billion stars in a galaxy and 100 billion galaxies, so maybe 
10 to the 22 stars. Um, so somewhere in there you might expect to find intelligent life and technology. Really, the tyranny of light speed and just the fact that as a signal travels through space, it gets weaker right. over distance, means that I think where we need to concentrate is in our own backyard within the Milky Way galaxy. There have been some experiments that have taken, for example, the Andromeda galaxy and, and um, taken the whole galaxy in one field. Now you're looking at 10 to the 11, 10 to the 12 stars all at once. But some experiments have been done to look at a whole galaxy at one time, saying, well, yes, it's very far away, and so the transmitter that I would be able to detect has to be super powerful. But maybe out there in the technologies of these distant galaxies, there are lots of transmitters and there's some distribution of power. And maybe there's some ginormous transmitter. And if you look at all the stars in, in that galaxy all at once, you're going to get that transmitter. Right. right? You'll, and it may, the power of the transmitter may be enough to compensate for the huge distances. But our project here with the Allen Telescope Array is is right now focusing on those exoplanets that Kepler and the ground-based observatories are turning up daily. Okay. So I want to get to the signals, and I want to get to some specifics of, uh, of aspects of the science now that we've put things in their proper context. You're looking at a small region, relatively small region around the Milky Way, uh, around us in the, in the Milky Way. Um, but let me, let me play devil's advocate for a moment, because some people might be SETI fans, and they might have heard about uh, all sorts of uh, past skepticism. So let me play devil's advocate and allow you to quash me uh, like a bug, as it were. So there's something I read called, uh, and I heard about before, called the Fermi paradox. Yes. So Enrico Fermi apparently said, he said all sorts of things, the famous Italian physicist, uh, who uh, was such a great experimentalist and theorist, uh, quite uniquely. So apparently, his concern was if there were so many, uh, granted on a statistical basis, there should be all sorts of uh, intelligent life forms all over the place, given how many stars there are, given how many possible planets there would be, given the fact that we shouldn't be so necessarily unique that in the history of mankind we realize that we are less and less unique than we thought we were uh, mm -hmm. the more and more we learn. That being said, um, where, where are these people? Because if uh, if there really was that amount of life out there, they would have visited us already, and we would have had some. Uh, uh, we would have had some. We'd be teeming with with signals all over the place, and we'd be teeming with visits. How would you answer that that particular skepticism? Well, it's important to deal with that because paradoxes can be extraordinarily strong. We take Euler's paradox: the sky is dark at night. That ultimately leads you to an expanding universe. Right. Um, really very, from a very simple observation, a very powerful conclusion. Fermi said, in the 10 billion year history of this galaxy, if there had ever been another technological civilization anywhere or any when in this galaxy, then they obviously would have been able to uh, develop the means for traveling between the stars and they would have begun to travel. And on any kind of model that you use, they will colonize the entire galaxy in a time that's short compared to the, to the history of the galaxy. Right. But they're not here. So that means they can never have been another. We have to be the first. Right. Okay. 
The problem with that argument is being able to say, they're not here. And again, I don't, I'm not, not talking not about yet. Ann Allison <laughs> abductions from the streets of New York, right? But that, actually, we can't say that. We've even so poorly explored our own local backyard in right. this solar system. We can't say that there is no evidence of uh, an extraterrestrial craft or markers or you know the the uh, the obelisk from two thousand and one. Right. Um, and we also have this bias that space colonization is going to be big wet biology boldly going. Maybe that's not how it happens. Maybe it's small. Um, really intelligent uh, little nanoprobes. Maybe they don't have to send their biology, they send the information and the, we get, uh, the, they recreate what they want to at their destination. We haven't seen any evidence for any of that, but it could be here. Uh, the best that we've been able to do is say, well, if they're in the the Lagrange points of the Sun and the Earth system, those places where there's a lot of gravitational stability. You don't have to expend a lot of energy to stay in one place, to station keep. We've looked at some of those with in, in reflected light and with radar, and yeah, probably we would have seen a Battlestar Galactica kind of thing, right? Unless it was cloaked. Um, but not a small, not a small probe. Right. Um, so in fact, we can't make that very definitive, they're not here statement. And there are, there are other explanations which have to do with the fact that, all right, the entire galaxy may be colonized. That does not mean every star within the galaxy is colonized. There are diffusion uh, solutions to this problem that leave pockets unexplored. So, don't know. Right. It is, it's not something to be sneered at. But I also think that the last sentence of that Nature paper in 1959 is, is kind of the right approach to this. They said, probability of success is difficult to estimate. But if we never search, the chance of success is zero. Okay. So we're searching. Um, we may be wrong. We may be looking in the wrong way. We may not have yet looked in the right direction with enough sensitivity. Uh, it may be something else entirely. But we are trying to use the tools of the 21st century that we have to see what is. So you mentioned the originators and you mentioned uh, Drake. There's also, on the positive side of things, when you talk about how difficult it is to estimate, but of course if you don't look, the chances is going to be zero. Well, Drake did estimate, or at least provided some mechanism for getting a sense as to how we might be able to statistically count some sense of how many uh, intelligent beings might be out there if we make certain assumptions. I wondered if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Well, Frank developed something called the Drake Equation. Actually, it was the agenda for a meeting. <laughs> yes, that's how it started. Um, and, and the reason is because it's a wonderful way to organize our ignorance. And right. if you're going to have a meeting to discuss this topic about which we are totally ignorant, what do you have to think about? So. Frank sat down to set the agenda for this National Academy of Sciences meeting at Green Bank about the question of life and intelligent life in the universe. Right. And so what do you need to think about? Well, what's the rate at which stars are being born? And of those stars, which of them are likely to be able to host um, planets for a long enough time for technology to develop? And 
if you have a planetary system, how many Earth-like planets might be in that system? And of those Earth-like habitable planets, how many of them will life actually begin on? And if you take all those life starts, well, how many of those life starts develop intelligence? How much of that intelligence develops a civilization that's technological? Right. And finally, how long does that technology last? How, how many years are those transmitters turned on making this technological civilization visible? We're beginning to get a handle. I mean, when Drake did this back in 1961, I think it was, planets were a big open question. Right. Uh, now we can begin to deal with those first terms in the Drake equation. Um, the question of life, well, maybe we'll know something more about that in a decade or so as we explore our own solar system. If we were to find a second genesis here, a second place, an independent evolution of life on some other body in our solar system, like Mars or Europa or um, Ganymede or Titan, right? that's hugely powerful. If you find a second genesis in this one solar system, you know that life, at least microbial life, is going to be ubiquitous, abundant out there. Um, so we may know something more about the life term. Intelligence, that's, that's kind of hard. Uh, we have been really good at ignoring the intelligent species that we share this planet with. It's only lately that we have come to appreciate um, that a number of different uh, vertebrates are self-aware and are incredibly intelligent. Um, doesn't stop us from, from doing them in, but we are at least now acknowledging that intelligence isn't only embedded in us. Right. Technologies, we seem to be it. And the big unknown is how long we're going to last, the longevity. So you take all those other factors, and to within astronomical accuracy, eh, they're one, unity, right? right. So the number of technological civilizations out there with whom we could possibly make contact is a, approximately equal to their longevity in years. So if technologies last for um, a thousand years and then they're gone, uh, that's a thousand civilizations out there in out of a hundred, a couple of hundred billion. Mm, it's going to be hard to find them. They're going to be the, the closest one's going to be far away from us. Right. But on the other hand, if technologies are stabilizing and allow civilizations, technological civilizations, to persist for timescales that are on the order of stellar lifetimes, billions of years, tens of billions of years, um, then the nearest such civilization is going to be much closer to us, and we have a much easier job potentially finding it. But we don't know. Uh, Let's see, Gott, Richard Gott at Princeton, took the Copernican principle, saying we're nothing special. Right. And you can calculate using that and how long we've been around as a civilization. You can calculate um, that with 95% confidence, our technological civilization is going to last another 5,000 years, um, not less than 5,000 years, or probably not more than, um, I think his upper limit's six or, seven billion, uh, six or seven million years. All right, so that's a big range. It's a big range. Right? And again, I love Phil Morrison. He always had these wonderful things to say. 
Phil said, in any science where the error bars are in the exponent, so you don't know whether the number is 10 to the 3 or 10 to the 8, right? That's not a theoretical science. There you go. That's an I'm, I'm... observational science, uh. <laughs> and that's what we're trying to figure out. Right. And, and I guess there, there are a couple points to make uh, listening to you, to you talk about this. And that is, it, at some level, it's really very simple. We don't know. Uh, and, and if you're a scientist or, or of a scientific persuasion and you don't know, you find out. Yes. You look. You, you search. Um, uh, there's this wonderful quote uh, by, by Einstein, who of course had many wonderful quotes, not all of which uh, he actually said, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and, and the wonderful quote in particular I'm thinking about is, if we knew what we were going to find, we wouldn't call it research. And, and that really sums it up. We have to go look. We don't, we don't actually know. Right. There's nothing that's, that's guaranteed. And, and, and that's, that's part of the excitement and the joy and, and often the frustration of the quest. The other thing is, as you were talking about the Drake equation, again, this, it strikes me this is a scientific mindset. You can say, we don't have any idea. We don't know. We don't know. There's a, there are a whole lot of stars out there. There are a whole lot of potential, but we don't know. But Drake, it seemed to me, did something... Uh, uh, he, he started with that basic premise, but he said, well, let's quantify and let's qualify what we don't actually know. We don't know this, we don't know that, we don't know the other thing. So that by separating this and by being very, very clear, we can hopefully one day be able to at least know what we know and know what we don't know. I don't want to be getting into known knowns and sound like Donald Rumsfeld and all the rest of that. But I think there, there is something really important to this idea of actually clarifying what we know and what we don't know. And in the hopes that we will be able to, with the benefit of technology and wisdom and, and, and searches and so forth, we'll be able to say, well, we got that one figured out. Maybe there are 10 unknowns that we, we still don't have, but at least we used to have 11, and now, and now we don't have 10, or, or now we only have 10. Um, let me ask you a little bit more about the, uh, let me go back to this question about the data. Okay, so now I'm, uh, I've got the message, Jill, you're, uh, you've convinced me that we should go searching. To, to find these possible uh, signals of, of extraterrestrial uh, intelligence, or at least technology, which is a proxy, as you say, for intelligence. Um, we should be looking for non-natural signals, right. things that nature wouldn't necessarily uh, do, things at a very, uh, very specific frequency, maybe cyclic in nature. We should be looking at high-intensity bursts in the optical spectrum. We should be looking at various different things. So. Um, I guess two questions. First of all, what does it actually look like? So when I'm sitting here at, at my radio observatory and I get a whole bunch of stuff that comes at me, what, what sort of thing do, do you and your team, what, 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 how, do they, how do they look for the signals? What do the signals look, for, look like and, and, and how does it work in terms of processing? So one of the, the ways that we analyze the data that we get here is um, in two-dimensional diagram. Frequency, you're plotted horizontally, time vertically. And so you can think of it as a television picture, and we're looking for patterns in that picture. Right. Right? Now, if it's noise, it just looks like an old analog TV set with a whole bunch of snow there and right. nothing. If you stare at that particular image long enough, you might, in fact, see that there's something non-random there. Um, and I'll make it a little easier for you, and once I do this, you will not ever be able to not see that signal. But there is a straight line there. And the computer algorithms that we use 
get that line very easily with a Six Sigma result. There's no question, although right. it's hard for our eye to see, right. there's no question that that signal is there. And that's an example of a single tone, a, a signal at a particular frequency that's being transmitted by the Voyager 1 spacecraft. It is the most distant human-made object. It is about to leave the solar system. It's at the heliopause. Okay. Right? It's about to go leave the influence of the sun and go uh, out among the stars. So it's transmitting a signal at one particular frequency. We're receiving it not as a horiz not as a vertical line at right. one frequency. We're receiving it as a slanted line. That's what I wanted to ask. So I see by this this graph that's superimposed on it, well, there's a spike there, so that it looks like there's that one frequency. That's what I would say. But that's now, right. you, now you show me this right. this diagonal line. So why do I get why do I get different frequencies? Where are we sitting? We're we're sitting in somebody's office. Right. We're sitting on the surface of a rotating planet. Those telescopes are attached to uh, the surface of the Earth, which rotates once every 24 hours. Well, because our transmitters are rotating relative to that spacecraft that's way out there, there is not just a difference in velocity between the spacecraft and the receivers, but there's a different velocity at every moment. So there's a differential acceleration, and that acceleration is causing that Doppler drift. It's the change in frequency. So when you measure the slope of that line, you can understand that the Earth rotates once every 24 hours. So the other way to look at it is we can use that signal from Voyager to actually calculate how fast the Earth is spinning. Yes, Except we already knew exactly. that. But <laughs> well, but it's a fun student. It's a fun project for students. Right. Right. Um, and so the other. The fact that we're rotating, the spacecraft might be rotating or have some other acceleration, the transmitter, with respect to us, means that we have to search that diagram for all possible slanted lines. And so when we do this, we need uh, high-level processing equipment, mm -hmm. analytics, all the rest of that, which I'm guessing have improved considerably over the years. The, um, the ability to do that search for all these drift at, at different frequencies has sped up enormously over the decades that we've been doing this. Right. Uh, I said Frank Drake started with one right. channel right. that he scanned along. We now have hundreds of millions of channels. We look at multiple planetary systems at the same time, um, each of which has this big spectrometer behind it doing this kind of signal processing. We're looking for pulses. Um, so yes, we're about 14 orders of magnitude, 14 factors of 10 more comprehensive than and fast than Frank Drake's in, in original source in 50 years. So that's good progress, but there's now that computing, we used to have to build our own computers, starting with the chips, because nothing was fast enough to right. do this in real time, which, which we think is important because once you have a signal, you want to follow up. It's, it's the best way to discriminate against our own technology. Okay. You want to be able to follow up you, once you've found the signal immediately. It means that we have to do our processing in near real time. It used to mean that we had to build our own chips, our own boards, our own special purpose computers to do this. Now, computing's gotten fast enough. We've got a room of enterprise servers that are lightning fast allowing us to look at more frequencies and allowing us to now start to do different kinds of searches for different sorts of patterns. 
um, so at the about, same time. Tell me about those. What are the different? How how is this? How the search has changed in terms of? Uh, well, they're just beginning to to change. We are we're taking advantage of the fact that um, the radio astronomers with whom we built this telescope as a partnership built something that's called a spectral imaging correlator. So this array, because it has little dishes, looks at a big patch of sky. Right. We've um, built a number of beamformers that um, look at individual directions in that large piece of sky. And the radio astronomers built a correlator, an imaging correlator that makes an image of that whole area of the sky. At the moment, it has about 1,250 independent pixels right. in that image. And each pixel has 1,024 spectral channels associated with it. Wow. So it's a data cube. Right? And, and we've now uh, begun to see how can we exploit this imaging correlator in order to look for different kinds of signals as it, within an image at different frequencies. Uh, so we're, we're experimenting with autocorrelation functions where instead of um, working in the frequency domain, we work in the time domain and we look for um, a repetitive structure in a signal. We're looking for polarization modulation. We're looking um, for uh, a number of different features in images. And, and the cool thing is that we're just beginning to be able to, to think about using machine learning. Telling a machine, this is something that's interesting, this is something that isn't. Or even more fundamental, this is radio frequency interference being caused locally or by our own technology, ignore that. Right. But this, that's more interesting. So go find all examples of that. And this is a new way for us to go. And so, how does this work? Does this work with with some kind of? So, my knowledge of AI and, and machine learning is is sadly very small. Uh, and probably stopped with neural networks back 25 years ago or whatever it is. So, I don't know exactly how the technology works. Well, um, we're not sure either because it's a new step for us. First of all, we have to be using approaches that that work on data that's streaming past. Right. the processor, right? right. We, we're not storing anything here. We're doing our processing in real time. Um, but you can and still you start, triggers, right, at some level. Well, you start by, by the sort of training you were talking about for a neural network. You just have to give it a lot of data that it can make, it can apply rules to. Right. And you tell it, you start with a human and you say, that's an interesting pattern, that isn't, that's interference, that's a possible signal. Um, so we're just starting down that path. We're, we're trying actually to get, um, so we're do, going about a number of different things here. We're working with um, a, one commercial company and some folks at JPL uh, to see what we can develop. Um, but we're also starting with humans and giving them images in frequency and time and asking them to find patterns that are other than these straight lines and hopefully put together a whole training set that our citizen science volunteers are looking for. So we're trying to get people involved with doing the search so we can get them thinking about it. Because if I can get them thinking and excited about the search, I can change their point of view. I can change their perspective. I can make them think 
about being earthlings. And I can make them think about how trivial the differences among all humans really are okay. when you get this cosmic perspective. I, I want to get to the cosmic perspective uh, in a moment. Uh, but let me, let me pick up on what you were saying with, with the science itself, because this, this strikes me as fascinating in all sorts of different ways. It's, it's fascinating because um, obviously there's a lot of scientific work that needs to be done for SETI and that, and that uh, people uh, can contribute and participate in the science in all sorts of different ways. Um, but we're also looking at this idea of pattern recognition, and, and as you mentioned, humans might be able to detect pat or, or can detect patterns in certain ways that, that might be difficult to quantify or difficult to process or difficult to set up an algorithmic for. Um, and this makes me think, I mean, one of the wonderful things about science, of course, is, is how serendipitous it might be. You start off thinking about this and you, you, yeah. you wind up actually learning about that, um, in addition, perhaps, to this or, or maybe not at all. And as you were talking, I thought, well, it might be the case that all this work for looking for uh, extraterrestrial technology and signals and so forth might also have an effect on, through these sorts of programs that you're talking about, might help us in some way understand how humans actually recognize patterns and pattern recognition and how they differ from machines and so forth and so on. Uh, uh, of course, there are many other experiments and many other things that are going on, but one of the great things when you start quantitatively analyzing scientific uh, possibilities and experiments is that you get results that you weren't necessarily thinking about at all. Um, and, and, and an obvious example that which is trotted out by, by every physicist who's looking for more funding is you should fund what we're doing because look what happened that the World Wide Web was actually discovered at CERN. Um, and so you never know what you might find or you never know what might come in handy. And, and maybe that's just a, a practical device to make sure your particle accelerator is funded. But at the same time, it's true yes. that, that that's the way science and technology actually operate, that, that you, you try to quantify things, you try to be rigorous, you try to look at how you can solve the scientific problem. But in so doing, invariably, all sorts of other interesting opportunities and avenues open up. And again, getting back to this core issue that this is science. This is hardcore, real, serious science. Um, you never know what you might find, not only out there in terms of extraterrestrial signals, but even in the short to medium term, which of course is uh, is, is, is much is shorter and much more shorter. <laughs> than it used to <laughs> be. Um, it's it's important, and and you never know what what can happen by when you get this wonderful nonlinear effect by by supporting science. Is that all sorts of discoveries happen in all sorts of different ways. Anyway, I've turned into a, a, a massive scientific promoter, which I, I don't mind doing, but isn't really the purpose oh, of, but it's, of what it is that we're. It's a good thing to be doing, and and you know I couldn't. I'm just here in the choir cheering you on because because <laughs> I believe that completely, and uh, I don't know what will come out of these experiments that we're trying to do. Um, you can imagine small offsets that the pattern recognition that we figure out how to do could be used in a related science. But it's really the, oh my gosh, because we can do this, oh, well now, golly, we could do that. Who would have thought, right? This, this unexpected uh, right. consequences. And, and the way things stream together. I mean, the way that you are able to piggyback so naturally and so successfully on the astronomers who are looking at exoplanets and, and the Kepler experiment and so forth, that you're able to say, well, all these guys are discovering all this. We know this for a fact. That's actually out there. So let's point our, our, our radio telescopes in this particular direction. Let's point them in that direction. Let's, let's study these sorts of signals. Let's go in this particular way. 
because you're benefiting from, from that technology. And presumably, some of the, the work that you're doing, even in the absence of receiving a signal in the very short term, will be helpful in terms of all sorts of analytics and radio astronomy analytics that, that are being done for all sorts of different endeavors, I would imagine. We hope that will happen. Um, you have to remember that we've set out to find signals that look engineered rather than right. natural. Right. And so the spin-off into detecting natural kinds of emissions might not actually happen that way. In mm -hmm. fact, in we're always asked, well, what's been us? You know, right. you've, you've been working on this, what have you done? An interesting one that we got involved with, because what we're learning how to do is find signal in noise, for a while we were experimenting with radon transforms, um, rather than Fourier transforms. Uh, and turned out that the kind of algorithms we developed were pretty efficient for the early approaches to automated scanning of digital mammograms. Really? Cool. And it turned out that, so there was actually a, um, a clinical trial. And it was judged, we weren't cost effective enough. There was a more cost effective way to go. But it was kind of interesting. Sure. I mean, that's what we were doing. We we're finding signals and noise. And right. that's what you try and do when you look at a mammogram, these right. micro calcifications. Right. So, um, and, and getting, getting to the signal processing aspect, there are increasing opportunities that SETI is now opening up to try to benefit from uh, expertise around the world, of people who, who want to help the, uh, in terms of the, the processing analytics and, and, and so forth, right? That's my, my understanding. That's of. right. We, um, we made a decision um, a few years ago that we wanted to make this an open project in any way that we could, knowing full well that this is not an easy job. Um, so we've done a number of things. We've taken the code that finds those kinds of signals. And I have a low battery. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> OK. Anyway, we know the kinds of signals that, that uh, uh, right. we're, we're, um, we're <laughs> the, the code that, that uh, does the finding the signals, matching them against known interference, deciding whether or not this is a good candidate to follow up on in the next observation. All that code we cleaned up and we published in the open source right. so that people can maybe pick things out of it that would help them do their job or take a look at it and say, oh, I could make this um, database query more efficient. And, and uh, So there have been a few people who have gotten involved with us and the code. It's big. It's hard to get it up on your platform, right? right. Uh, the other thing we've done is taken a lot of data, and we don't store any data here except information about signals and candidates that we've found. Mm -hmm. But we've said for for better part of a year, we just said Friday afternoons, we're recording direct to disk. We're not processing the data. We're just recording the raw complex amplitudes as a function of time. We're putting that onto disk, and that's a source that people can go to in the cloud, and there's there's support for people to use resources in the cloud, to data mine that, to try and develop new algorithms against those data sets. Well, it's, a, it's a known fact, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is it's a known fact that Friday afternoons are the preferred time for alien transmissions. Now, here I mean, we go. 
<laughs> I, I'm not sure how that schedule came about. Right but before they go there off we go. To their, their beer. Of course, they've calculated for the time. Exactly. The and, and the rotation of the planet. They know where this, the uh, right. telescope is. Yeah. Um, and then the third thing we've done. So we have, we have code out there that we're sh we'd like to share with anyone who wants to get involved. We have data that people can access. Um, and the third thing that we've done is to develop a citizen science project. Hmm. So we have all of these, I've got nine billion channels of radio data that I'd like to search through for every target. And I'm doing it hundreds of millions of channels at a time. Right. But as I go through the spectrum from one gigahertz to 10 gigahertz, where the universe, is, nature gives us a quiet window right there. About the only signals in there are the cosmic background radiation. It's a very quiet window on the universe and from, from, um, from the surface of the planet because at frequencies higher than about 10 gigahertz, our atmosphere starts to contribute. Okay. So this is the terrestrial microwave right, window. Right. Love to search through that. Um, there are places in the spectrum that we allocate by international treaty to communications and to other kinds of services. So they're really loud. Right. There are a lot of signals there. Right. And, and typically when we go through those, we find all these signals and we're not yet fast enough to decide whether we've seen them before, or whether there's something we want to follow up on. And rather than do an incomplete observation, we just skip those frequencies. But you know, it's not really very smart because that's a signature of Earth. Those are frequencies on which we're transmitting. If, in fact, there were very nearby civilizations, they might have already detected some of that information being broadcast on those frequencies. And thought, this is a good one to use. And, and transponded it back. Yes, but we're skipping right. it. So we've decided to try and see if we can use the public to help us there. So we're taking small bits of data, because this is an isolated facility, and there isn't a great huge fiber pipe into here. But we're, we're squirting as much data as we can out of the observatory into the cloud, and then there's a citizen science um, application called SETI Live. And people are presented with two-dimensional views, frequency versus time, and we ask them to mark any patterns they see and tell us whether they see those same patterns in the other directions that we're looking at to try and help us discriminate against interference and tell us we're not just looking for lines, anything that they see, any kind of pattern. And we're trying to have this happen fast enough so that by the time our own processors are coming back saying, yep, from that particular frequency range, we have these candidates that we want to follow up on. We can also have a set of candidates or not right. coming in from our volunteers that we also want to follow up on. And then they they have to stay with us because they're the ones that are sure, going to. But they flagged it, and they. And and they're they're going to help us see whether that signal is still there when we go right, back, and right. whether it goes away when we move the telescope right. away. And so this. Uh, so this is an opportunity for people to really be involved, to do real science, to really be involved in in in, in the whole endeavor, right. rather than just hacking into their friend's website or doing something like that. Right, and it's it's a big challenge to get this. We're trying to close a feedback loop in about sixty seconds. That's huge. That's, that's a huge challenge. Um, we haven't gotten it quite right yet. I think maybe I'm told next week we ought to be really? making, it, wow. making it in real time. <laughs> um, so we love people to help us. And then they can um, join in and 
and do the next step, which is, okay, well, gee, we found these signals, and they're clearly interference. What interference? What's causing that? Um, we can use people to do all kinds of web searches to figure out, oh, that's coming from that particular satellite constant. And, and therefore, if we want to look at that frequency, we should do it and schedule it when that satellite's below the horizon. Right. So we can have people help us get smarter. And again, people will provide the data sets to eventually train machines to do this kind of thing. So they can eventually learn by themselves. Yes. And, and we just really want to get people involved. I mean, I'm such, oh, I'm Pollyanna, right? I'm always hugely optimistic, but I actually think that if people get involved with us and can begin to think about the kinds of images we were looking at before, the galaxy, the cosmos that's full of galaxies, the Earth, which from space has no geopolitical boundaries. Um, if you get people appreciating themselves in this larger picture, then perhaps we can set the ground and set the, the, the um, stage for cooperating, cooperating on the challenges that we have that don't respect national boundaries. We can deal with these global problems if we can see ourselves as a global species. I don't know, maybe it's crazy, uh, but I think we're just right there with the uh, social media and the mobile technologies. I think we have a huge opportunity here to connect people in a way that allows them to see themselves from a totally different perspective. I think SETI's like holding up a mirror, right? and you see everybody on Earth in that mirror. And even though there are superficial differences, they're all here on Earth, they're all Earthlings, and they are so hugely different from anything else that might have evolved out there. It just might be a pivotal time with the right concept, the right meme, and the right technologies to infect the globe with this idea of um, the fact that we only belong to one tribe, and that's the Earth. I hear you talk about a cosmological perspective. There is this sense, uh, as we had both mentioned previously, that all throughout human history, when you talked about the Copernican principle and so forth, we thought that we were so very special. We thought that we were the center of the solar system, which we at that point called the universe. We thought uh, we were the only life form with intelligence or consciousness or whatever. And it seems like one could make an argument that the march of science has been uh, paring away layer by layer our, our self-importance in terms of where we are and what it is that we're doing. Um, and presumably, if we were to find a signal tomorrow, or if we were to have a sense uh, uh, of, of, of an intelligent life form through this technological proxy immediately, that would be extremely inspirational, as you say. It would be wonderful. It would give us a sense not only that we are not alone, but that, uh, as you had pointed out, it's possible for technologies to last for hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of years, uh, which would give us an enormous amount of hope for the future. So mm -hmm. this, this notion of being able to get this, uh, get this signal would, would be a, a tremendous affirmation of our potential 
on Earth, that, we're, that, that there's real hope that we're not going to necessarily blow ourselves up or, or, or die out within a relatively short period of time. All that's very positive, all that's wonderful. But then I think, so here's my, my cold water being mm -hmm. thrown on the situation. But then I think, from Earth's perspective, if you look at the people um, who were considered heretics in, in at least Western civilization, uh, so much so people like Giordano Bruno, who was burned at the stake, People like uh, Epicurus, who, whose work was uh, basically slandered out of all out, mm -hmm. out of all proportion. One of the things that uh, one of the key things that these people said or subscribed to beliefs that they subscribed to that made the church so incredibly upset with them was this belief that there was actually life on other worlds that we weren't actually that unique, and and this led led a lot of people to be tremendously upset. Are you so rather than just pouring cold water on things, let me, let me try to ask you a specific question. Do you encounter in your job this sense of pushback from people because of religious or personal grounds say, no, 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 that's just a complete waste of time what it is that you're doing because we necessarily must be special. We necessarily must be uh, a people who, uh, who, who are unique. That this whole quest for looking at some affirmation of our non-uniqueness is in itself misguided because we are de facto unique and I can prove it because of this book or that book or, or, or what, what this guy says down the street or something like that. Is that, is that a source of frustration for you or is that a source of, uh, of limitation? Or, or Certainly that happens. Um, however, think about it. Organized religion has been around for a very long time. Our cosmology has changed drastically over the millennia. Right. Organized religion is still with us. It's managed to somehow bend and shape and encompass what we've learned, right? Sometimes not very gracefully, um, but I take, I take uh, hope in the fact that Steven Pinker says we're getting kinder and gentler now than we ever were. Does Steven Pinker say the Pope is getting kinder and gentler? That we are. <laughs> no, we are. Well, at least we don't have the Inquisition. That's true. The Pope has lost that tool. Um, the, uh, my sense is that it's only the fundamentalist religions that postulate a very special relationship between Jesus Christ and humans that have this problem. The, the, the major atomist religions, uh, we, we've had them write papers. They can very easily come up with um, humans are created in the image of a god, the most godlike thing about humans is our intelligence. Therefore, the search for intelligence elsewhere is just the search for manifestation of, of God's, God's handiwork elsewhere. Okay. There are lots of ways of telling that story and being comfortable with it. It's when you um, postulate a personal relationship with a, a deity that it gets to be sticky, um, because does your relationship have to be mirrored every place else in the in the cosmos that there might be life and. I'm a scientist. Um, I got excited when I was a graduate student about the opportunity to do an observation that might tell us what is, rather than having to ask somebody what we should believe. Right. And I'm still involved in the mindset that says we should explore to see what is. If that's uncomfortable for various um, cultural or religious reasons, doesn't change what the universe is. And as a scientist, I think it's um, 
a responsibility and a privilege to try and explore and see what really is out there. Right. Let me ask you about spreading the message a little bit more concretely. You talked about some of uh, the citizen science aspects uh, of, of SETI, but SETI also has a broader outreach mandate and, and a way of uh, reaching out to kids and to, uh, and to teachers and to adults and the general public and so forth and so on. Um, because this is such an inspirational story, this is such an inspirational pursuit, this is something which has such broad-based resonance with, with almost everyone who's human, almost everyone who's human who I want to meet anyway. Um, so can you maybe tell us a little bit more about what SETI's now doing and what, and what you'd like to be doing even more in the future about, uh, about programs for involving more and more people, aside from the ones, that, or perhaps in addition to the ones that, 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 that you've mentioned already? Well, we um, have the opportunity in the past we've had and we hope to have in the future continuing opportunities to bring in um, undergraduate university students for uh, a 10-week program called Research Experience for Undergraduates. Now one of the things about the SETI Institute which most people don't appreciate is that there are a handful of people there who work with me on the search and now with Jerry Harp who's directing the, the Center for SETI Research. But there are dozens and dozens of astrobiologists working at the SETI Institute interested in microbial life and the extremes of life on this planet and the extent of life uh, elsewhere. So we have this huge scope, suite of scientific research being done. And so we can bring in students and we at the SETI Institute are all comfortable with this being one continuum of right. uh, exploration. And the students really have a great time. I mean, we bring them here for a week. And how cool is this? We spend two days here at the site. We do lectures in radio astronomy and interferometry and SETI. They do experiments here in the afternoon using the telescopes. Um, and then two days, we go down the road to Mount Lassen with our astrobiologists who have field sites for extremophiles in that volcanic park. And so they get to see the connection and the combination, and right. they get to live at this cool place and figure out how to cook dinner for 20, right? <laughs> <laughs> Which is always a, a an experience, <laughs> right? So um, we'd love to do more of that kind of thing. Right. Uh, we have a Wednesday colloquium, actually now going to move to Tuesday, lunchtime colloquium, where we put out peanut butter and jelly, and we invite anybody in the area to come to the colloquium, and we put it on our... YouTube channel, our SETI channel on YouTube, and we're reaching the, the, the most popular talks get a few hundred thousand views wow. for an hour for an hour long lecture. I think that's that's, that's impressive. pretty cool, and we'd love to, to make that even better. We, we could do more of that. Right. We have developed um, curriculum for for school use. It's a full year long curriculum of integrated science that works on um, we call it voyages through time. So origin of the universe, origin of the solar system, origin of life, and evolution of each of these, origin of technology and its evolution. This whole long story that um, young people, this is ninth grade, uh, beginning of high school, really like because the story is so compelling and it's being done in an inquiry-based mode, very hands-on and a lot of activities, that the learning happens sort of incidentally. Because the story is fun. And because people are passionate. They're yeah. naturally passionate. I mean, you mentioned extremophiles. 
And, and we talked a little bit about that in a, in a general context as well, about, well, we're not really sure what to look for because, when we're, because we have our own perspective. But just the amount of work that these astrobiologists have, have done in terms of getting an understanding as to what bizarre, to, to us, bizarre uh, circumstances life can seemingly exist that we would, 20 or 30 years ago, have discounted as, well, that's just impossible. Oh, absolutely. You can't, you can't have anything in there. And then it turns out the robustness, the breadth of, of life possibilities is, is so much larger than what we might have uh, been led to believe. And the idea that these fascinating new developments are linked to the sorts of, uh, of things that you're doing, that you have a real synthesis between physics and biology and chemistry, mm -hmm. makes this, a, I would think, a particularly uh, uh, exciting and passionate field. People use this word interdisciplinarity and they throw it around all over the place. And there's this idea that you throw an economist and a, and a nuclear physicist and a, and a historian together and great things will happen. And most of the time you... you yeah, you, look what happened when the physicist went to Wall Street. Well, that's, don't, 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 don't get me started there. But anyway, so interdisciplinarity necessarily does not, does not work necessarily. But, but in my view, it certainly happens uh, when there's a reason for it. Right. And, and here, there's a, there's, a clear scientific, there's a clear scientific reason we for have, it. We have a wonderful um, example at the SETI Institute. We have a scientist um, who was cracking rocks and looking at the oxygen chemistry uh, that happens when you crack a rock and the energies released. That release. There's actually some chemistry there. Wondering about origins of life. That's how we got started. That whole discipline has maybe turned into an eventually very effective earthquake prediction really? story, which may give not just minutes, but hours and days of indication of an earthquake. Huh. Cool. And of course, I think I deal with. with um, politics and uh, people's points of view, but I, the, the, just think about how you would ever test this, right? How, it's really, well, I guess it's after, difficult. Maybe after the fallout. Well, anyway. that's, what you're, that's what you're doing now. You're, um, you, you, you get the data, you make a prediction, and then you don't tell anyone until after the fact, and then you can say, well, here's what we predicted, and right. here's but the, moving it to the next step and actually thinking about moving populations out of harm's way. Um, with the tsunami warnings, uh, the, uh, that's, that's so imminent and people know which way to run, uphill kind of thing. Uh, but this is a larger geopolitical, sure. uh, human nature kind of thing. But this is your metier now because you used to be the, the director of research at SETI for quite a long time and, and, and led it uh, splendidly. And now, for reasons that, quite frankly, I still can't understand, you've, you've decided not to do that anymore and become a full-time fundraiser. Oh, it's uh, not. It, it's oh. just because it's so necessary. I, 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 was, I was kidding. I was kidding. No one becomes a fundraiser out of will. I, 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 well, maybe not no one, but no, no one I'd ever like to talk to becomes a fundraiser out of will. So you have, you have stepped up to the plate, as they say, and you have uh, sacrificed yourself and, uh, for, the, for the good of the SETI team. Um, so I'd like you to get a. I'd like from you to get a sense as to what needs to be what needs to be done. I know that uh, on a concrete level. So behind us we have these thirty-two telescopes. Right? Forty-two. Forty. Sorry. Life, 42? the universe, and everything. Right. So so, but that would imply perhaps that we don't need any more. But but no. we do. But we do actually need more than forty-two. And there are plans to develop uh, a, a much larger array. In fact, there. My understanding is there are several tier 
plans are developing a much larger array so as to have increased sensitivity to the data, so as to be able to, uh, to, to work more effectively, so basically to be able to do a much better job at, at scanning the sky for signals, as well as doing other radio uh, astronomy and, and other issues. Um, so there's clearly more infrastructure, but uh, there are all sorts of things, presumably, that SETI, SETI needs, uh, and you have decided to, as I said, step up and, and, and become really a permanent fundraiser in terms of money and also awareness and participation. So, uh, so what's that all about? What do you need? Um, what would make I think, you happy? What can I, I think give you? Ultimately, ultimately, what SETI needs is an endowment. Right? This, this kind of project, which might be multi-generational, you know, this huge high stack and right. we're trying to search, um, doesn't do well with the annual funding cycles. Um, we were a NASA project for a while. It didn't fit with the congressional cycles. It was too easy a target for little green men and ha 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 and there you go. No SETI funding. In terms of um, annual campaigns and fundraising from the public, which we're doing now, again, um, since you can't deliver something each year as a concrete, here, here's a brick you bought. Right. You can buy a telescope. Right. That's fine. And we need 350 of them eventually. Um, or maybe 500. I think the valley's big enough to, to fit 500 in, but um, an endowment seems like the right thing to be going after at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, we need to uh, be, be cognizant of the fact that when we built observatories in the past, we have often failed to fund the scientific research there. You fund the instrument, right. but you don't fund the, the scientific operating. research. Right. Here we need to fund the instrument, but we also need to provide funding for the smart young people who are going to do the next big thing right. with the instrument. Um, think of the next new signal processing capability. Bring in the next new technology. Uh, make it all happen. You know, SETI is, in some sense, a long shot scientifically. You have to be, enjoy the process of developing the technology as you go along because you can't guarantee that you're going to get a payoff of a signal in your lifetime. Right. So you have to enjoy the journey. So we're asking people to, to take kind of a step, a leap, to go in that direction. Not all scientists want to do that sort of thing. But to um, have their future financial situation at risk is, is a huge. Sure. There are long shots and there are long shots. I mean, there's a scientific long shot in terms of we're going to be able to find a signal tomorrow or in the next five years or ten years or maybe within your scientific lifestyle. But that doesn't stop, of course, somebody from being able to make uh, significant developments in terms of technology, in terms of signal processing, in terms of all the other science which, which, which can and will be done. Right. But they have to have the assurance to know that this is a well-funded domain, that they're not putting their careers necessarily at, at, at risk. And that enables you, of course, to be able to draw from a much better talent pool of the people, best, people yes, who, who are coming, who right now might say, well, this is something I really care about and I like and I'd love to participate in, but I'm not going to take this career risk and, and shoot myself in the head by doing this particular thing. I'm gonna, I might as well do this because this is stable, well-funded, well-respected uh, area in, in, in science. And you see that happening with all sorts of, of scientific endeavors where people, the, the brightest, most creative people are very often drawn towards riskier activities. Yes. Um, but then there's this inner tussle with, well, do I really want to do this? And, and, and so I have a wife, I have a husband, I have a family, I have this, that, and the other thing. How do I go forwards? And, and I think having money not only gives you 
the, the infrastructure to be able to do the science, but it sends a very strong message to the scientific community that come here and prosper in this particular avenue and help us to, be, to, to achieve all that we can achieve scientifically, and you won't be frozen out. You won't be taking this horrible career right. risk. And, and dry in the next generation. Right. That you can help uh, to mentor and train and inspire. You mentioned, you mentioned political games very, very briefly with Congress and funding and all the rest of that. So I don't want to go, go into, the, in, into the details of that. But I guess you don't there, want to talk about us being the four-letter S word that you couldn't say at NASA headquarters? Well, to a certain extent, I do. I don't want to go into the who said what. But I, I, want, to get, I want to get into this, this, this sense of maybe I'm, maybe I'm being hopelessly naive. But, um, but if, if SETI is, a, is an easy target for Congress, or, or, or some cranky congressman, or some people, because it has some flakiness associated right. with it, or they perceive it has some flakiness, or they're using it to further their own agenda. At some level, at some level, that might be not not wholly, but that might be able to be combated directly by more vigorous outreach, by more vigorous uh, educational techniques to let people from all stripes know: No, this is serious science. This is important. Here's the educational component. How many congressmen? do you know have actually come here, who have been involved in SETI, who have had the opportunity to talk to you, who know about the, the, the serious goals and aspirations of, of the organization? Because, um, I mean, hopefully, the more people are aware of, of what it is that you're doing, the less SETI will, will become, or, the, or the, the smaller the risk that it will become a political football and will be thrown out as, as some sort of bizarre government waste of, you know, the, these guys in Washington, they buy, 500 billion pens and they fund extraterrestrial research, you know, I mean, that, exactly. that, that, that kind of silliness, which is so, so, clearly, uh, so clearly erroneous. Um, is it, can, can some of that at least be, be minimized or eliminated through better outreach, through better awareness, through better, uh, better interaction with, with the broad citizen base and also the politicians? Well, I think it, SETI isn't alone in that... Um, the need for politicians to be informed and educated. Um, stem cell research isn't doing all that well in, in the uh, congressional venue. Um, so yes, telling people about what we're doing, having you help us tell people about what we're doing, phenomenal. We do as much of that as we possibly can. Um, but I think actually what I'm trying to say is that even if we could educate the Congress, that still, it's an annual funding cycle. Right. And other more immediate concerns, sometimes totally out of our control, uh, affect that funding cycle. Sure. So, so you when you endowment. take something that's such a long-term project, I think you need to build an endowment. So for how it. much do you need for your endowment? Well, if, if we only need a couple of million dollars a year, then your endowment's going to be on the order of $40 million, right? Um, if, you need, if you need more, you have to build that up to, to more. Um, I take heart in the fact that once I decided that I needed to do the fundraising because it was getting pretty critical, right. um, at any one time in this country, there are something like 140 programs, each trying to raise $100 million. Isn't that amazing? I, I was startled. Um, of course, there's the question of how many of them actually raise $100 million, but... 
That's right. But but the point is, there is that kind of capacity, and and for, and actually, I just mentioned this country. That's, That's where silly. I to go. It should be global. This is planet this Earth. Is, after exactly. All. This is a global thing, and. That's where we're not doing a very good job. We don't have a lot of outlet to the rest of the world. I can go and give only so many talks. Um, so we need, that's one of the reasons I hope that SETI Live, which definitely has a global audience of citizen scientists, I hope we can reach them and have them engage you know, their neighbors. You know who you should talk to? You know who, in, in, in my humble opinion, are the most forward-thinking uh, planetary citizens who actually have money and use it in intelligent ways in Norwegians. These, these guys, they're really smart and they fund all sorts of things for, to stop environmental degradation and, and this tiny little country of four million people, sure they got a lot of oil, but they're really forward-thinking people. You should go, uh, go talk to the Norwegians, I think. That sounds like a good idea. I think they, uh, but, but I mean the, the point that this is, this is really a global project and, and, and of course you have to have infrastructure based somewhere and, and, uh, and you, have to, you have to have people, you, well, you have to have telescope space somewhere and, and you have certain centers and so forth. Um, but this is something which is in the direct interests of everyone on planet Earth. Uh, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be a project which is supported and scaled up so that it can be really of, of planetary dimension. Of course, that's the only way it, it has to go. I mean, you were talking about signals maybe coming from, from a galaxy, for goodness sakes. I mean, think about that. Think about people coordinating from different stars to be able to beam something out of, of, of such a huge, <laughs> huge area. Yes. It's mind-boggling. If we can't even get people on our, on our planet <laughs> together to actually recognize that these sorts of things are important, then, uh, then it doesn't bode very well for our ability to be able to survive in the longer term. It doesn't, and I think um, there's, again, going back to Philip Morrison, he had a phrase that encapsulates that all so beautifully. He liked to refer to SETI as the archaeology of the future. Right. Right? <laughs> Tyranny of light speed, we learn about their past, but if we succeed in detecting a signal, we learn that it's possible for us to have a long future. And that is such an important message that uh, it makes it worthwhile working on this project. It is. Well, Jill Turter, may you and SETI have the longest possible future. It's been, uh, and the most prosperous possible future. I wish you all the best, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank and you It's been much. my pleasure, and uh, welcome again to, <laughs> to our unusual looking telescope. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Physics, Volume 2, along with separate discussions with Freeman Dyson, Jenny Nelson, Claudia Deram, and Lee Smolin. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.